Let's pray. Father, thank you for these that have been mentioned. And we know we come before you because you're the one who can heal. And we know, Lord, it, it's your will to heal. And we ask for healing for these that we've requested. And ask that, dear God, your power will be touched in their lives. That the Spirit of the Lord will bring the healing power of Christ into their hearts and lives. We pray today for strength. We pray for direction. We pray today that you would touch every heart here and the families that are represented. We pray today, dear God, as you move across this land, that we, Lord, would truly look up and that we truly would see that you're a God who loves people. And we believe, dear God, that you're doing great things in the earth today. And we ask you that you would draw people, that they may have a uh, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, today for that uh, strength. We praise you for those who have been healed. We thank you for the provision there as we have the opportunity to give into the missions field and beyond. We thank you, Father, today that you are working great and mighty things here. And the people that you've brought in this church, we don't believe by accident. And so there's something that you're up to. And we're just grateful. And we want to praise your holy name. Dear Lord, help us to remember at all times, dear Lord, what Jesus has done for us. But as we approach this time of the year, dear God, may people say, and know in their heart of hearts, there's more to it than just the Easter bunny and getting eggs. But dear God, it's about what Jesus Christ did for us willingly as he went to Calvary to die for the sins of all of mankind and all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray even now today in many churches meeting and we ask you that you would touch every heart, speak through every minister. And dear Lord, testify through every testif testifying. We ask you, to, dear God, that you would prepare our hearts even now as people gather for next weekend. That dear God, today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So dear God, today by your spirit, we pray you'd get us ready. We believe great things are happening in the earth today. And we pray today that we can be a part of it and join you. And certainly bless your whole, your heart, but also that we would be blessed. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And I want to mention too, I believe we're at a real significant time of history. I believe that we certainly could see a harvest like we've never seen before take place in this nation and beyond. I believe today as some may be testifying that as we remember history and what happened with the Great Awakening, and I believe the 1700s, there with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and those who preached revival, and revival came to this land, I believe that we possibly could see a greater awakening across this land than man has ever seen before. Be prepared, pray, and continue to ask the Lord to pour His Spirit out together. As we come together as one, we know that the power of God is poured out. And we know today that God is good, and he's good all the time. And we want to praise him, and we want to truly just say, Lord, what are you doing in the earth today that we can join you with? So be in prayer for that outpouring of what God is doing, we believe, in these last days, because we believe that time could be very short, and Jesus could come back at any time. And as we look at Luke chapter 23 today, I want to look at verse 26, Luke 23, 26. Through 43. My title says the way to the cross. And we'll read verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, 
who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, The woman without children, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In verse 32, Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And the people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And ascription was above him. The last words of a dying person normally never forgotten. A person's closing comments often reveal the pain and agony and suffering that they're experiencing. And soon after eternity, without saying anything, while others utter sentiments that disclose their values, priorities, and innermost thoughts. This is what happens. You see who a person really is. At that particular time, you can run, but you can't hide. You see who the person is when you're going through severe suffering. In fact, our faith is tested, we know. And we know that, obviously, it's not to see whether or not God knows how strong our faith is. It's for us to see the things in our lives that may be weaknesses that God wants to strengthen or, or really just to uh, bring under his uh, will and, and, and under the blood of Jesus. He reveals those things to us. I always said, when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's letting us see ourselves, and he wants us to know that so that we, too, can, the word I use, maybe can rally behind him and get in on the things of God and what he wants to do, and that is he's about changing lives, and he's about changing your life. He's about changing my life. But right before P.D. Barnum died, he asked, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Humphrey Bogart's last words were, I should have never switched from Scott scotch to martinis president grover cleveland said this i have tried hard to do the right joan crawford was filled with anger when her maid began to pray out loud and said don't you dare ask god to help me lewis Mayer, the film producer gave his philosophy of life and death and he said nothing matters nothing matters leonardo da vinci when surveying his life's work said I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. And General John Sedgwick, who fought in the Civil War, had his final words cut off in mid-sentence as his soldiers were seeking cover from some sharpshooters. And this is what he said. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... And that's it. <laughs> Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary, sighed. Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Karl Marx turned to his housekeeper, who had urged him to tell her his last words so she could write them down, and he shouted, Go on and get out. 
Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. We're looking at the final words of Jesus in this particular scripture when we look at it. Significant, because I believe they hold such meaning and purpose. They're definitely not the words of someone who didn't say enough when he was alive. And we have his terrific teaching in the four Gospels, and we have his final seven words as well. These shouts are riveting and piercing, beautifully yet shocking. These weighty words that he spoke dropped from his lips while his sacrificial blood splashed on the ground. Most of the time on the cross was spent in silence, and yet seven sentences are recorded for us. While his body was racked with pain, his throat parched with thirst, he had no energy to waste on trivial matters, and each word serves as a window to help us understand Christ and the cross better. You know, let's take a look at this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These three shouts between 9 a.m. and noon, these is what he said. Father, forgive them. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, dear woman, here's your son, John 19. And from noon to 3 o'clock, there was darkness over the land. And then beginning at 3 o'clock, Jesus uttered his final words. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He said, I am thirsty in John 19. In John 19, he says, it is finished. And in Luke 23, into your hands, I commit my spirit. These words are rich in their doctrine truths of Christianity, of forgiveness and faith and family and humanity of Christ and his substitutionary death, the fulfillment of scripture. The justification of the believer and the absolute certainty of eternity. That's good news, isn't it? But yet we see these profound words that Jesus said when he was going through the agony of the cross. And I want to look at these final hours as we look at it. And I want to look at it medically. It's very confronting in what Jesus Christ, he was God and yet he was man. He was deity and yet he was human. And we see that. And he came because he, he certainly knows and he walked that walk. He knew what temptation was. He knew what it was to be rejected. He knew what it was, obviously, to suffer. And all of these things, we know that he bore our iniquities. But we know also that certainly he went through so much there in his final days. And we'll talk about it, first of all, the final hours when you look at it and medically speaking. In the last 12 to 18 hours of Jesus' life, and following the Last Supper, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He poured out his distress to the Father as he went through a deep spiritual struggle. And being in anguish, it says, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The loss of this blood and the sweat would create the beginning stages of dehydration. And it says in verse 43, an angel appeared at this point and gave Jesus strength. Jesus was then arrested and faced a trial sometime after midnight. He was led away with his hands bound. The same hands that had healed the sick tells us that Jesus was blindfolded and beaten while the soldiers mocked him. He then faced a second trial with more illegal proceedings. Jesus is now exhausted by lack of sleep, abuse, by the loss of fluids, and also the ridicule. And in an attempt to appease the people, Pilate has Jesus scourged. 
And this is not something that would ordinarily be done as part of the crucifixion, but Roman law allowed the prisoner to be beaten to a point of death as measured by a rapidly increasing pulse and an irregular respiratory rate. These whips had a small piece of metal attached to the end, and it would chip away and gouge at pieces of bone and also the flesh. His skin would be stripped into long ribbon-like segments causing profound arterial bleeding. A crown of six-inch long thorns was then pressed deeply into his scalp. This would cause additional blood loss, which would deepen his state of shock. A purple robe was thrown across Jesus' shoulders and back. This may have served as a temporary compressive dressing, helping to congeal the blood pouring from his gaping lesions. The mockery continues by the soldiers as they spit on him and beat him with reeds and hailed him as the king of the Jews. Pilate then presents Jesus to the crowd wearing the crown of thorns and the robe and says, Here is the man. Medically, Jesus would demonstrate cold and pale, sweaty skin, and the mucous membranes would be bluish and cyanotic, and his countenance would be haggard and drawn. His reflexes would be depressed, his pulse pounding, his respiration shallow and barely perceptible. Pilate now succumbs to the manipulation of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus is condemned to death by crucifixion. The purple robe is stripped away, and this would be similar to the careless ripping off of a surgical dressing, causing the wounds to bleed freely once again. Jesus is giving the cross beam to bear to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Thankfully, someone's enlisted to help carry this piece of slivered timber that would weigh up to 100 pounds. And Luke 23 gives us a very brief statement about the crucifixion. In fact, in the Greek, only three words are used to describe it. We know more about the specifics from how the Romans recorded the gory details. When it says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And they placed Jesus on the middle cross to signify that out of the three, he was the most worthy of death. Listen to how one pastor writes it. Quote, now walking, now crawling, each step an agony to behold. He's been beaten to an inch of his life. His back is in shreds. His face is disfigured and puffy where they ripped out the beard by the roots. On his head was a crown of thorns. The soldiers don't mind getting a person who's almost dead because it would mean that they, their work would be easier. They drive the construction grade spikes into both wrists and then another one through his legs. And with the ropes in place, they began to pull the cross up. Jesus now spurts blood from his raw wounds. He no doubt experienced severe muscular pain. His upper extremities it only got worse as his joints separated. He could draw air into his lungs, but could not easily exhale. As carbon dioxide accumulated, progressive degrees of asphyxiation would occur and build up. The lactic acid would create violent muscle spasms throughout his body. In order to take a breath, Jesus would have to push up on the nail of his feet, forcing an up and down motion as, an op as the open lacerations on his back would, would scrape against the rough timber of the cross. It is in this position that Jesus uttered his final seven shouts. According to Roman historians, 
It was very common for those who were crucified to utter blasphemies and words of wrath towards those who were involved in the execution. Seneca, a contemporary of Jesus, recounts that those crucified would normally curse everybody, including their own mothers and fathers. The Roman philosopher Cicero writes that the executioners would sometimes even cut off the tongues of the criminals so that the soldiers would not have to listen to the vindictive, vindictive verbiage. Listen to what peace, Peter's perspective is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus could have prayed right then, Father, consume, consume them, wipe them out. There was certainly an Old Testament precedent for this kind of prayer. What happened at Golgotha was unforgivable. They had crucified the Son of God. What could be worse than that? It begins with a prayer. In Luke chapter 23, the words of grace as Jesus grasped, gasped for air, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And as they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and when the first red drops of blood spurted on his hands and splashed on the soldier's hammer, the blessed mouth of Jesus formed the words through a prayer for pardon. His request was not for himself, but for them and for us. His first thought is to plead in prayer for those who are in desperate need of forgiveness. And when man had done his worst, Jesus prayed not for justice, but for mercy. The verse is in the imperfect tense here. What that means is that Jesus prayed repeatedly for their forgiveness. It wasn't just a one-time request, Father, forgive them. But when the nails tore through his tendons, sending jolts of pain rushing through his body, he closed his eyes and he prayed, Father, forgive them. And when the cross dropped into the place between the two criminals, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And when they divided up his only earthy possessions below the cross, he exclaimed, Father, forgive them. And as the rulers sneered at him, he replied, Father, forgive them. And when the soldiers mocked him, he shouted, Father, forgive them. And when the sign, the king, this is the king of the Jews, was hammered above his head, he sighed and said, Father, forgive them. The public ministry of Jesus began with prayer at his baptism in Luke chapter 3. And as he was praying, heaven was open. He flooded heaven with his prayers during his three-year teaching time, urging his followers to do the same. His time on earth ended with prayer as he continually repeated this prayer of forgiveness. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, He always lives to make intercession for us. Prayer permeated everything he did, and it still does. As the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's ever making intercession for you and for me. He's praying for us right now. He ever makes intercession. That means ever, and I guarantee you, that is in that tense that's continual also. Ever making intercession for us. Let me look at this. I want to see here in Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll just read what he did for us. He, was, he would be despised and rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He would be afflicted by God because of our sins. He would be pierced for our transgressions. 
He would be wounded and bruised by men. He would be led like a lamb to slaughter and be silent before his accusers. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be a guilt offering. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He would pray for those transgressors. And when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He was fulfilling a precise prophecy from that's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for his transgressors. And by the way, the fulfillment of this prophecy helps us not only to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but it also removes any doubt about the truthfulness of the Word of God, the Bible, the Holy Bible, and the blindness of the human heart. Jesus recognized that they, those who had crucified him didn't really know what they were doing. While his enemies knew full well what they meant when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, they were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. They didn't know that they were killing the Lord of glory. And while they didn't know, they should have. They had the prophecies that were numerous and very clear. His teachings were profound and filled with wisdom and authority. His miracles should have convinced them. His perfect life and love should have removed all doubt about his identity. And really, there was no excuse for their ignorance. You know, in Olympic, Olympic competition, you've seen this before happen in different Olympic games where they go in and they take blood tests of those who are participating in the games. And at various times we see where they come back and they say, uh, you've got this drug in your system. And sometimes the Olympian will say, I didn't know it was there. But what happens to that Olympian regardless of whether or not they knew it was there or not? They were excluded from the games. Friends, let me tell you something. We all have something in our system. It's called sin. We have no excuse and can't plead ignorance because ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. God has revealed himself and has made things plain. He has zero tolerance for sin. In Romans chapter 1, he says that men are without excuse. But also, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't pray that the Father would just forget about it and what they were doing because they didn't really mean it. He specifically requests forgiveness because they are responsible. They and us are in need of release from our debt to a holy God. And a lot of people today say, oh, it's not my fault. How many have seen a culture turn around in my lifetime and your lifetime to say, oh, it's not my responsibility. Uh, that somebody else did it and so forth. But when we stand before God Almighty today, we are responsible and if we do not accept the forgiveness of the one that we're talking about today and, and these details of what happened in his life and he's walked on this earth as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, came down from his royalties in heaven and knew he was going to Calvary. From eternity past, this was on the heart of the Father, knowing that he would send his only begotten Son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Your sins and my sin. We've got something in our system, don't, system, don't we? And it's called sin. And the only one that can cover it in his blood is the Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent, obviously perfect blood of the Lamb. Peter in Acts chapter 3 told those who were responsible for the death of Christ that they acted in ignorance, and yet 
In verse 3, verse 19, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We see the magnitude of our need because our hearts are blind and, and hard. Our need is great. We're sinners in need of forgiveness. It's not just those who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. In a very real sense, we were all there when he was executed. You and I were the ones that obviously would have been there at the foot of the cross, cheering it on, clapping our hands, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Most of us have no problem of castigating others for their sins while excusing our own behavior. And this sneaks in, obviously, we see here on a national level today as well. And we refer to other people in other countries, you know, as evil. That, oh my gosh, that place over there, it's just, that's a hornet's nest. This place is evil today. But let me tell you something. It, sin isn't just out there somewhere. It's in here. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? During World War II, the Second World War, an old cathedral was bombed in England. And in the 1960s, a new cathedral was built alongside the ruins of the old one. And on the altar, there's a cross that was constructed out of nails that were taken from the collapsed roof of the old church. And on the cross are the words, Father, forgive. Many visitors were bothered by this because they wanted it to say, Father, forgive them. Meaning, Father, forgive the Germans for bombing this beautiful place of worship. And the reason it reads like that is because even where the issues seemed so clear-cut, Britain had some sins to confess also. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty and we need to repent in order for our sins to be wiped out. We see an identification with Jesus. Notice that Jesus shouted out this first cry to the Father. Up until this point, he was able to forgive the sins of others without asking the Father to do so. In Matthew chapter 9, he says this, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Why now does he ask to have sins forgiven instead of directly pronouncing forgiveness himself? It's because Jesus has identified with his people and is about to give his life as the sin substitute. His death is full payment. For the penalty of sin, he pleads with the Father to accept the sacrifice of his blood on our behalf. He is our representative. He went to Calvary in our place, in my place, and in your place also. He took the sins of the world upon him. When he ministered on the earth, he had the power and authority to forgive sins because he knew that they would be dealt with on the cross. Now he intercedes on behalf of hard-hearted people like you and me. As he hangs on the cross, he who needed no forgiveness died for those of us who are condemned without it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the triumph of divine love. Jesus requested forgiveness for the unforgivable immediately after he was impaled on the cross when man had done his worst, when the vileness of the human heart was displayed in all its ugliness, when the creature executed the creator, when divine love triumphed and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The prayer was answered 
when the centurion put his faith in Christ at the foot of the cross and when one of the crucified criminals next to him called out for salvation, the prayer was answered in a profound way on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And there were 3,000 people that came to a saving grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen modeled this prayer right before he died when he cried out in Acts chapter 7. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And after he had said this, he fell asleep. This prayer was answered when Paul, who was responsible for Stephen's death, met Jesus in Acts chapter 9 and was converted. And this prayer is answered today when individuals turn to the Lord in repentance and invite him to be their Lord and Savior. At that instant, God the Father applies the blood of Jesus and declares that person forgiven. Isn't that good news? Our Savior. He bore our stripes. By His stripes, we're healed. God came. When Samson neared the end of his life, his rage caused him to take others with him when he died. Jesus wanted to take his enemies to life through his death. And so he prayed for them, and then he died for them. In John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. And someone has said, it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love that did it, that held him to the cross. It's your move. I remember seeing a billboard years ago that showed a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. His head was bowed and in big bold letters the caption read, It's your move. It's your move. Have you been forgiven? If Jesus can forgive those who drove the nails into his hands, into his feet, who put the crown of thorns on his head, who, who took that whip and beat him to within an inch of his life, If Jesus can forgive them, then Jesus can forgive us. You see, we're complicit in the death of Jesus. And each of us stands in need of forgiveness. All we do is reach out and receive it. Many people today believe that they can do this and they can do that. That they can somehow be just good enough to make it into heaven's door. And we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And obviously our unrighteousness and the filth, the depravity in our lives can never ever measure up to the holiness of God. The only one can would be God himself, his only begotten son, who gave and shed his blood for us. Jesus has made a way. His prayer for your forgiveness was answered by the Father. And can be activated in your life the instant you reach out to him in faith and receive him as your savior. The price has been paid and a path has been laid. The question is, will you accept that price? Will you accept Jesus Christ? I talk to people all the time. Talk to someone recently and they said, Jim, I was uh, into faith, but I wasn't a practicing person in my faith. And my family was not raised up hearing the word of God. But I've come back. In the last short time in my life, I've come back to the Lord. And I again, and I said, do you believe in Jesus? And they said, yes. 
Do you know he's the only one to ha- only way to heaven? Yes, I do. He said that she said, but my my family they don't know Christ. They're they're good people, Jim. They're kind. And this lady lit, used the words kind, and they were very compassionate, and they did different things all the time for other people, and they did that. And I said, had they accepted and had a person have a personal relationship with Jesus? No. And I said, pray for them. We're the time today that we know that God could call us at any time. And yet we know many people today who would not darken the doors of a church and never come and hear the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The church doesn't save you, but we know we gather and we celebrate because of what Christ has done and we hear the word of God. The question is, have you received him? The other question is, have you forgiven others? Someone has said that forgiveness is the virtue we profess to believe, but we fail to practice it. And one man writes, what's so amazing about grace? And one lady writes this, despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we don't forgive easily. We don't find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always harder than the sermons make it out to be. The word forgive actually is borrowed from the word of commerce and banking. It means to cancel a debt and to pardon a loan. One man writes this and he gives some great insight when he reminds us that the word forgive contains the word give. To forgive is to cancel the debt of someone so that they never have to pay us back for what they've done to us. It's to give grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. And if we choose to not forgive we can end up letting our anger and resentment metastasize into bitterness. We know today, I know people today, when somebody has passed away and everybody's sort of jockeying to get what they can from the so-called inheritance today, and it may not be much, but we know we've seen it, is that they want that little bit. And sometimes when they don't get that little bit, They will separate as a family and they will hold it against other family members all the days of their life. And when they come to death's door, let me tell you today, they don't have peace. And until we learn to forgive ourselves and ask forgiveness and forgive others, we'll never have peace. So I want to today encourage you, challenge you the same way. The same grace that Jesus extended to you and to me for the forgiveness of our sins, he extends to others also. We may not say, well, they don't deserve it. Neither do we. Neither do we. The key to forgiving others is to understand how much Christ has forgiven you. In Ephesians chapter 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. In order to forgive, we obviously have got to remember our forgiveness. We've got to think back and know that Jesus forgave us. Why not forgive others? If we'd been at the cross, we had been holding the nails. We'd probably have clapped and cheered. We're not that much different, are we? We're obviously the secret of forgiveness is to understand that in the ultimate sense, Between you and the person who hurt you, there's really not much difference, is there? It's not suggesting that it's easy to forgive, and it's easy to preach about it. But it's much more difficult to practice it. But let's start forgiving people 
who have hurt us so deeply, to forgive us costs Jesus' life. To forgive others will cost us something also too. We have to give up our anger, turn away from our bitterness, release the right, certainly of revenge, and decide by a conscious choice that we will forgive those who have sinned against us. And God may call us to perform this unnatural act of forgiveness over and over again until we learn the grace of continual forgiveness, just like Christ prayed repeatedly on the cross. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. Obviously, certainly it's easier said than done. But God wants you and I free. And when we don't forgive, that person not necessarily is hurt by it. But we put ourselves in bondage again. And we are the ones that certainly is affected by. I encourage you to forgive people just as Christ has forgiven us. I read a story about a pastor. I'd like to share it with you. And this pastor said several years ago, when they had lived in Mexico, he said he visited a town called Taxo on Good Friday morning. He says this, I began, began my ascent up the cobblestone streets in search of the town plaza. When I finally got there, I saw hundreds of people who looked like they were waiting for something. Some were perched in trees, others were standing on park benches, and still others were looking out the windows of area buildings that lined the town square. I picked my spot and headed for the second floor balcony of a restaurant where I could take everything in and get something to eat. As I sat at my table overlooking the crowd below, a group of younger guys grabbed the table next to mine. I smiled at my fellow gringos and dug into my, my food, hoping they wouldn't block my view of the plaza. They ordered pizza and beer and began telling raunchy jokes. And then, as if on cue, the crowd be below parted and I saw a man carrying a huge wooden beam. He walked slowly and with great effort as he struggled to keep his balance. Another man followed and he put his cross down and took out a whip and started beating his back. Bright red blood appeared on top of the lacerations he had from a previous whipping. I kept hoping he would stop because it looked so painful, but he didn't. He kept thrashing himself until the whip had turned red and raw muscle were exposed on his lower back. And when I fell there, when he fell on the stony street, tears ran down my face. And by now the guys at the table next to me had started to make fun of the procession below. In between their joking, they would look down, make a funny remark, and go back to their pizza, oblivious to the pain and the agony right in front of them. I wanted to say something to them, but I was too choked up. Here I was, looking at a few men who were doing all they could to relate to the suffering Jesus went through, and sitting right next to me were guys who could care less. As I thought about this, it struck me that this is a good picture of the human race. Some of us are trying to do everything we can think of to get to heaven. We focus on trying to be good, or when that fails, we punish ourselves in vain hope that God will accept our sacrifices. Others are just cruising through life, focused more on having a good time than on eternal realities. To people like this, life is a party. And when I looked at the irreligious guys next to me and then gazed at the religious men down below, 
I swallowed hard because neither approach will get you to heaven. The only way to gain God's favor and enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and eternal life is by entering into a personal relationship with Christ. One pastor writes it like this because some people would say, how do you know that he's Messiah? Well, as God reveals Jesus to your heart and you realize that you are a sinner and you realize that grace and forgiveness from the Son of God is the only way that you can have that forgiveness. But let me give you a statistic here that's very eye-opening. The probability of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies referring to the Messiah is one in 100 trillion. To further illustrate, suppose that we take 100 trillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, the state of Texas. They would cover all the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state and blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he's got to pick up one silver dollar and he's got to say that this is the right one that's been marked. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them come true in any one man. By the way, it wasn't just eight prophecies about Jesus. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus coming. And there is one that he will soon return and fulfill the prophecy of his return. Think about it. Three over 300. The first time he came as a lowly carpenter. The next time he'll come as a risen conqueror. The first time he came riding on a donkey, the next time he'll be riding on a white horse. The first time he was mocked and scorned, the next time men will tremble and fear. The first time he came weeping, the next time he's coming with a shout. The first time he came to redeem mankind, the next time he will rule all of mankind. The first time he had no money for taxes, the next time he'll own everything. The first time he came alone, the next time he's coming with saints and angels. The first time that he came, he was mocked and scorned. The next time his enemies will be under his feet. The first time he had his nails in his hands, the next time he'll possess a rod of iron. The first time he hung on a cross, the next time he'll sit on a throne. The first time he was judged in Pilate's hall, the next time he will be the judge. The first time men put him to death, the next time he'll destroy the enemies of God. The first time he came as a man, the next time he'll come as God. The first time he came as a lamb, the next time he'll be the lion. The first time he was meek and lowly, the next time he'll come in power and glory. The first time he wore a crown of thorns, the next time he'll wear a crown of crowns. The first time he was called the king of the Jews, the next time he'll be called the king of kings and lord of lords. The first time he came as a low, lowly Nazarene, the next time he's coming as the lord of lords. Are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus is coming back again in great power. 
Jesus traveled that road and bore the sins of all mankind, past, present, future. He bore the sins. He took care of it. It's finished. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. The New Testament, we look back at the cross. But we look to Jesus. Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I will stand with him here on this earth. Job knew. Abraham knew. All of these knew that God would provide a Redeemer to forgive us of our sins. Now, let me tell you, this is worth celebrating. He bore our sins. It cost him everything. And all we do is reach out and take him by the hand, trust him, put our faith in him. And I always think, God, if you did that for us, <laughs> in Romans chapter 8, since God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more along with him Will he give us all things? Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. No other God, no other person who claims to be God has ever claimed that. These people of other religions are just trying to work their way to heaven. They're just trying to do a little bit more. Maybe the scales will, will sort of balance in their favor. You see, the scales will never balance in their favor. Because we have sinned, and yet we have a Redeemer. His name is Jesus, who gave it all, and all to him I owe. Have you received him? If you received him, listening to what he went through today, and when I first started putting this down, tears came to my eyes, even now. It strikes me in my innermost being. Because of what my Savior did and what he went through at Calvary. He knew that he would go through this. He knew what crucifixion was. And yet he laid his life down voluntarily so that you and I would know that we're forgiven. And he has prepared a place for you and for me and all of his children to be with him for all of eternity. I want to tell you, the world mocks it, and the world can't understand it. But the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power unto salvation for all who will believe. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for sending Jesus, dear God. And we pray today as we've heard these words from your heart of what our Savior and Lord went through, that, dear Lord, our hearts well up, our eyes well up, because we know that he suffered and he died. But even more, not just the physical suffering, but the emotional suffering of knowing that some would turn away from him that some would not accept the gift of salvation, that some would say no and reject Him and to this day are mocking Him. Dear God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive us, O God, of our sins and cleanse us
and remove these things from our lives that are not pleasing to you, we cry out to you today. And dear God, if there's any unforgiveness towards others in our hearts, today is the day that we release them into your hands and ask the forgiveness that you and you alone can forgive. We pray that today. And dear God, today we pray that we would be ready because Jesus is coming back and it may be very, very soon. Help us to be ready. Help us to be alert. Help us, dear God, that we truly would share our faith with others as the Spirit of God directs us. Help us, dear Lord, to speak that good news into their hearts because there are people all around us who are hurting, who have no hope, and we know that they're destined to hell if they don't repent. We pray that today, that you would, Lord, give us the grace, give us the insight, dear God, the prompting, and the power, because we have that power. It's the power of Christ. But, oh, Lord, help us to step out. Because, Lord, we know today is the day of salvation. We honor you and we praise you. We pray, dear God, that we would see the real meaning of Calvary, the real meaning of the resurrection. And, dear Lord, it will all be applied to our hearts by your precious blood, Lord Jesus. We praise you and we thank you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.